0: Hello, and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, whose latest annual edition, the 6th 2023 edition, was published on Tuesday this week. A bit of a red leather day for me, but uh, also I hope one that will be of interest to you. You won't need me to remind you that this has been a dramatic year for both the financial markets and the investment trust sector. Surging inflation, big increases in interest rates, unprecedented rises in energy costs, global supply shortages, and war in Ukraine have dominated market performance in the last 12 months. With unusually both equities and bonds seeing negative double digit returns, and commercial property and private equity set to go the same way. In the investment trust sphere, well over half the universe has delivered a negative share price return in 2022. Not so bad in net asset value terms, however. Uh, And that's because we have seen discounts widen dramatically to more than 15% on average uh, from around 1% to 2% at the start of the year. Uh, For the first time in many years, there's not been a single IPO, uh, initial public offering, uh, in the investment trust sector, while secondary issuance is running at barely half the former rate. All in all, it's been quite a year. And you can read all about these developments, uh, the numbers behind the headlines, how different sectors have been affected, and what our expert contributors make of them in this year's handbook. On a more positive note, I review how shifting to a more defensive posture at the start of the year has paid off for anyone who took that advice. And we look forward in a series of interviews and our regular professional investor forum to how the markets may play out over the course of the next 12 months and some of the opportunities for bargains that widening discounts will inevitably throw up. As usual, at the back of the handbook, we have our normal... 60 plus pages of data and analysis, including several new features, such as a list of all the trusts which have some form of discount control mechanism, obviously important at the moment, uh, and a guide to using the income finder tool on the AIC website. The AIC's Annabelle Brady-Smith meanwhile contributes an eye-opening article looking at the number and role of women in the investment trust sector. Don't miss that. And there's plenty more. All these topics have, of course, been mentioned regularly in the weekly podcast, but the idea behind the handbook is to pull all these themes together in a handy single-volume educational reference book. In addition to hardback copies, we also have a free downloadable ebook version, which you, you can access by following a link on the Moneymakers website, money-makers.co. Uh, since I started it six years ago, we've had more than uh, 45,000 sales or downloads of the handbook. And this year's have got off to a good start as well, I'm happy to report. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, adding new features again next year, which will, I hope, be end on a more positive note than uh, this one looks like doing. Uh, Later in the podcast, I'll be reviewing the latest developments in the markets and investment trust sector with Nick Greenwood, manager of the MIGO Global Opportunities Trust, ticker M-I-G-O. Since he last appeared on the podcast, uh, we've had quite a lot of dramatic news. That was three months ago. We've had a decent stock market rally kicked off in October, offset in part for UK investors by the uh, fallout from the disastrous trust quateng political interregnum, uh, while bond yields have mostly declined somewhat from their recent peaks, but remain well above their start of year levels. This week, it's been a continuation of this up and down volatile market. We saw the equity markets uh, strengthen both here and in the U.S. ahead of the latest Federal Reserve meeting of the Open Markets Committee, the uh, the rate-setting committee of the Federal Reserve in the U.S. Uh, But they came out, they increased interest rates exactly to the extent that the markets were anticipating, a 75 basis point, that's 0.75% increase in the federal funds rate, but accompanied by some language which... uh, continue to show that the Federal Reserve is intent on continuing its tightening program. And while the pace and uh, potentially the size of future interest rate increases will be modified, will slow down, uh, it's not yet the end of the process. Uh, So the Federal Reserve Chairman, Jay Powell, said. And that in turn led to quite a sharp sell-off in the stock market after the news was released about that meeting. And then subsequently, we've had similar action by the Bank of England and the European Central Bank, both of which raising their core interest rates by 50 basis points. That's uh, half a percent. In the investment trust sector, meanwhile, we have seen the up and down and share prices following the markets generally. But we've had a lot of results, another set of bumper results from the investment trust sector. Most of those reporting, I have to say, which is characteristic of the investment trust sector in general, have seen those companies reporting interim or annual results, uh, reporting returns that uh, in most cases are one or two, maybe up to 5% worse than their benchmarks. Uh, That may have something to do with gearing, which obviously magnifies the extent to which NAV declines are reflected in share price performance and also, of course, reflecting the widening of discounts. Among those that we've heard from this week, I'll mention some in the in the Equity Investment Trust. We've heard from uh, Lowland, uh, Mighton UK Microcap, and uh, Peer Group uh, Trust, River and Mercantile UK Microcap. Both of them have seen significant share price declines as the markets have fallen, particularly among small cap stocks. We've heard from Global Smaller Companies Trust, has done rather better, but still down. Results we've had from a number of JP Morgan uh, managed trusts, including JP Morgan Asia growth and income, JP Morgan China growth and income, JP Morgan Japanese, and JP Morgan European discovery. Most of those reporting double digit in in a couple of cases, uh, even larger declines on NAV total returns, though uh, JP Morgan European discovery uh, did do slightly better than its uh, benchmark plus uh, polar capital technology and polar capital global healthcare uh, the latter being one of the few trusts to report in this wave of results to actually register a positive nav total return for its reporting period in this case an interim reporting period and we also had uh, a number of results from alternative asset trusts including uh, GCP Infrastructure, that's an Infrastructure Lending Trust, Gore Street Energy Storage, Foresight Sustainable Forestry, uh, which IPO'd only last year, uh, Custodian Property Income REIT, Ediston Property, Amadeo Air Force Plus, one of a number of aircraft leasing uh, investment trusts, which have come back from the dead this year, gone from being, we thought, uh, disappearing, to actually putting in quite a strong performance this year for a number of reasons we discuss later and uh, the three Doric Nimrod aircraft leasing trusts as well. Similar story there. We also heard any of the updates from Pantheon Infrastructure, Sequoia Economic Infrastructure Income, and Octopus Renewables Infrastructure. So an awful lot of news this week in terms of results. And we've also had some interesting announcements, all of which are summarised on the Moneymakers website uh, for subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle, our regular weekly update of news and the latest share and NAV and discount performance uh, of the week. No single clear pattern coming out of that particular set of data this week. We've seen uh, some uh, movements. They haven't been that dramatic, but we have a number of trusts selling off in the region of around 5% uh, or gaining 5%. And you can see which they are, uh, as I said, in our regular weekly summary. This week's investment trust profile for Moneymakers Circle subscribers looks at Biotech Growth Trust, which does, as it says on the tin, uh, ticker B-I-O-G. Stuart Watson, my colleague, has done an in-depth profile of that trust, which has sold off quite sharply. And uh, as we'll hear from uh, Nick Greenwood shortly, could be an interesting opportunity. So that's the news so far this week. Next week, there will be a podcast. Uh, It obviously is the week that ends in Christmas, but we will be doing a podcast as normal next week and indeed the following week as well. So uh, you can please look out for those over the holiday period. So I was happy to catch up earlier this week with Nick Greenwood, the manager of Migo Opportunities Trust. A trust, it's always of interest to us because uh, what Nick does and his colleague do is they look for what we would call special situations that are particularly relevant to investment trusts. So these are kind of discount opportunities, overlooked trusts, things that don't have a lot of liquidity and therefore they aren't very well researched, those kind of things. But we'll kick off perhaps by just uh, talking about the markets. Last time we talked, you said you had a slight difference with the consensus opinion that uh, interest rates are going to keep going up and inflation was going to go up in the sense that you thought it might come to a head earlier than uh, some others thought. This week, obviously, we've seen three central banks all putting up their target interest rates, uh, the European Central Bank, Bank of England and the Federal Reserve. But they've also been talking about the possibility of moderating the rate of increase and the target uh, ceiling, if you like, for interest rates that they have in mind. But the market has sold off despite that. So what do you think has been going on as far as that is? And have you modified your views at all?
1: No, not really. I think it's often the case in markets better to travel than to arrive, Uh, travel hopefully to arrive, and therefore people have been looking as far ahead as the interest rate rises. Now they're out of the way, people then looking to what's going on in the real world, and there there seems to be an unrelenting uh, bad news. So uh, uh, yeah, and and lots of signs of the global economy losing momentum. So uh, yeah, it seems to have uh, gone into threefold for a day or two, which, which suits us because we have quite a lot of cash in the portfolio at the moment. I think, generally speaking, um, taking away the the short-term movements, you know, we have moved into a different phase. You know, for the last decade or so since the global financial crisis, we've had a torrent of cash being pumped into the economy by the, the central banks and the authorities. And having all that liquidity pumped in ends up supporting asset prices. Now, in a slow way, the tide is against us. I don't think the authorities can rush too hard, given the fragility of the economy and of of markets. But nevertheless, the tide is going out, uh, and therefore that will have the equal and opposite effect on asset prices. So, generally speaking, we would expect markets to sort of move sideways to lower for some period of time.
0: So, you're not subscribing to the view that, uh, you know, the so-called Fed pivot They have suggested they're going to kind of alter what they're doing, or at least the pace of it and possibly the extent of it, though uh, that wasn't what uh, Mr. Powell had to say this week. I mean, there seems to be this kind of journey back from worrying about inflation to worrying about recession. I mean, that seems to be the dynamic. And it's hard to see an outcome which would be positive on both those at the same time. But you never know. It might happen, I guess. So in the meantime, that means that, uh, therefore, looking at the investment trust sector, Uh, We've seen discounts widen a little bit more again this week. They had a bit of a recovery while the market was uh, picking up again the last few weeks. Uh, Now they've widened a bit more. So you'll be accentuating the positive here that these are going to create some opportunities for you.
1: Yes, I think probably since I I was last chatting to you, I mean, we've had the spike up in gilt yields with the mini budget. You know, has sort of created a lot of change in the portfolio because... We've got a whole raft of alternative asset classes and alternative funds that um, appear to have just been bought for yield rather than looking at the fundamentals. So we had quite a big sell-off in a lot of the new asset classes. And so we ended up with a few new names into the portfolio. Aquila European Renewables as one, a stock called EJF, which does regulatory arbitrage in the States, And uh, GRIT, which is an African property specialist or Pan-Africa, excluding South Africa. And in a lot of these sort of high yielding trusts, you know, if you suddenly get or during the year you get gilt yields going from one to four and a half, what's going to happen to an infrastructure fund that was yielding four and a half before now yields five? The answer is that um, a lot of those things sold off quite spectacularly a a month or so ago, uh, and that has created um, opportunities to buy into asset classes that haven't appeared in the portfolio before.
0: So this has been kind of relatively relatively uh, hyperactive period for you uh, compared to what you normally do. You talk about watching paint dry being your normal stance. Yeah, but uh, I mean, you've been getting the paintbrush out a little bit here.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you, you would normally, when you're writing your notes, maybe have one stock coming in and one coming out each quarter. I think, um, you know, we've had, well, three that I'm talking about, three more that I'm beginning to buy, which I won't talk about because if anyone listens to it and buys, then uh, that's my opportunity gone. And three others that we had started a couple of months ago, but carrying on to buy, which are VPC Speciality Lending, one of the Japanese activist funds and uh, Aircraft Leasing Fund. All sorts right. of things which, you know, we hadn't had in the portfolio before. And the new breed tended to be quite popular and trade on around to par or, or on premiums up until fairly recently.
0: Right. So that is an opportunity where suddenly you get this change in dynamic where we move from a world of, of premiums, in some cases of discounts or discounts going wider. But, of course, to buy stuff, you've got to sell stuff as well. You've got some cash, as you say. You've got quite a lot of cash, so you've been harbouring some cash for opportunities. But you've also been selling quite a lot. So what's the sort of normal approach that you take here? When you see other things you think are good value, do you always chuck other stuff out at the other end? or
1: Not necessarily, because we have undrawn banking facilities. And so, for example, when we were um, trying to buy into the market in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic... We did that with borrowings. We were sort of close to fully invested, but um, the opportunity was there to draw down the facility and, and actually use that to buy some shares. This time, we already had a fair amount of cash. We've had a couple of big exits of things that have been in the funds for a long period of time. Alpha Real and uh, Dunedin Enterprise were about 10% of the portfolio. and Both have had tenders where we were pretty well cleared out of our entire position. And I think when investment trusts are in slow orderly wind down, Uh, What we're beginning to find is that perhaps, and we haven't really worked out for sure what's going on, but it's probably to do with the platforms, maybe not being very good at corporate actions, maybe the large wealth managers. Because if you look at Dunedin Enterprise, which was our biggest holding, you had a basic entitlement to redeem a number of shares. And if not all shareholders redeemed, then you would get taken out of a bigger position. But I mean, on that particular one, we were taken out of twice as many shares as we were expecting because the bulk of shareholders did not tender their shares, which seems odd because you were being offered an exit at par, which was in that particular case £5.37, and you could immediately buy in at that time at around £5. So it would be obvious that everyone should tender, but um, we tendered our shares and were taken out of sort of 80-odd percent of our holding, which was unexpected, and um, took our cash position rather higher than we were expecting. But you know, given the sea of red on the screen we see today, that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing.
0: <laughs> not not necessarily a bad thing at all. Okay, well, let's talk about some of these things that you have been doing. And you've mentioned quite a few names there. Let's start with some of the things that you've exited from or got rid of. In some cases, they've done well. In other cases, they've been, I think, disappointing. So there's only kind of themes in there we can see. Well, there's, you've got a couple of small cap trusts. You've got Artemis Alpha Trust and Strategic Equity Capital. Those are both UK smaller company trusts. And Strategic Equity Capital, that's had a bit of management change as well. Tell us what the story of those two is.
1: Very different stories. Uh, Artemis Alpha, we bought incredibly cheaply some years ago and it had a, a reasonable run, but basically quite a cyclical portfolio and you know, the UK economy, I know it's big caps and small caps as well these days. But um, the discount had narrowed quite sharply, was trading in at around 6% and the environment seemed to be tough for that style of investing. Uh, and therefore we took our money and run. Um, and it's something that, you know, had been deeply out of fashion when we we bought it there was a new manager came in who wasn't known to the market and therefore we backed it it was completely friendless, you know trading on the mid-20s discounts a a few years ago and basically had gone full cycle and was was trading quite tight and the special situation element that we, we were attracted to had actually run its course so that was very different from strategic equity capital which actually was really more of an asset allocation decision we had a basket of small caps, and um, basically life was looking a bit tougher for the UK, and therefore we wanted to reduce that exposure. And Strategic Equity Capital was one really didn't really have so much of a special situation element as some of the other funds, and therefore that was the one that we reduced. So that really was more of a um, facilitating a top-down call, and you know it is a great fund. Yes,
0: and uh, the farm manager has quite a strong following, but he's got to kind of almost reprove himself, hasn't he, I think, at this point. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, not known in our market, and that's why the discount was probably a little bit on the tight side.
0: Yeah, OK. So you also have some holdings in um, UK microcap trusts. You haven't got rid of those, and they've obviously um, sold off we've quite dramatically. have actually
1: started to, to rebuild in the case of River and Mercantile microcap, which is quite growthy and has been hit really, really hard. Um, but it's quite interesting. It's been very, very difficult to buy many shares, and... Um, yeah, so we have been nibbling, but we haven't got very far. And it's more to do really with the, the micro-cap valuations are now very, very low relative to the, to the merits of the businesses.
0: Yes, I noticed they put out their annual report this week. This is ticker RMMC, and they were reporting they were down 48% uh, NAV total return against the benchmark 26.9. So they really have been hammered a lot, and the discount is... Uh, Well, the discount went out as well, and it had been trading, what, sort of 15, something like that, that kind of rate? Yeah, typically, it has actually
1: traded at 20 on a couple of occasions, but it's one that did spectacularly well when growth was in favour and handed a lot back. I mean, fortunately, there was a point a year or so ago where this was trading briefly at a premium, and um, people were ringing us up, bidding us for stock every day. So we let half of our holding go, but uh, sadly, we didn't let it all go. But yeah, it's, it's now the point of perhaps jumping back on board on that one.
0: I mean, there are a couple of other microcap trusts out there, one of which is run by miton That's a ticker M-I-N-I. And that also reported some interim figures down 29% against 19.5% for the six-month period in question. They, of course, redeem their shares on a regular basis. So that tends to keep the discount a bit tighter, I guess. They have a regular redemption facility, don't they? But you also had another one. So uh, tell us about that one as well.
1: We've got Downing Strategic. That's had a tough time since since, since it was launched I think it's sort of deep value, concentrated portfolio, and probably it takes a while to get that money invested. And and sometimes when you've got a completely new investment trust and cash, you, you perhaps hurry more than you should to get the money invested. And a lot of the problems with that one came early. You know, they had a couple of investments that went wrong. And therefore, it you know trades on a deep discount because it has had such a tough run in its early years. But we we sort of take the view that you know the actual errors and the actual mistakes are quite some time ago, and that going forward, this corner of the market is is actually quite interesting. You know, some some extremely lowly valued businesses there. So you know, the catalyst is probably going to be corporate activity in many of these cases. You mean in terms of, uh, of, in, of in the underlying uh, portfolio? Yeah, um, in the
0: underlying portfolio, rather than rather than the trust itself. Yeah. You mean? Yeah. And has that been your experience? I mean, over time, the, the the microcap, it's obviously very, very volatile. It goes up and down a lot. But if you can get the timing of that right, that presumably is quite a lucrative.
1: Uh- yeah, I mean, that one also has a, a redemption feature in 2024. So the discount will narrow over the next 18 months or so.
0: Right. So you, you think that's a good mechanism for these microcap trusts to adopt if they can?
1: Yeah, I think it's more difficult in, in microcap, but it's similar to what we adopt on MyGo. So it does mean that people can take a medium term view on you. They know there there is an exit in size available. Otherwise, people would be you know quite nervous about um, taking big positions in a liquid trust.
0: Let's move on then and talk about some other trusts that you've uh, been getting rid of. First of all, reducing your stake or disposing of. I noticed. Third Point Investment, that is the Dan Loeb Hedge Fund Investment Trust. Have you run out of patience with them or have you achieved your objective?
1: No, it was really a case of achieving this objective. It traded on an enormous discount a couple of years ago. I really had struggled in the pandemic where um, Dan Loeb's protégé was was in charge. I think Dan Loeb had gone off for a life of philanthropy uh, and the hedges didn't work (laughs) and therefore Loeb was back. And I think it was trading on the low 30s of discounts at that point in time. So it was really a bet that he would turn things around. And he did. And the discount narrowed. So we were, it was a perfect situation for us, in at 30-odd, out at 10, and at some decent NAV performance in between. The discount narrowed quite sharply. You might remember there was um, some corporate activity. And I think AVI extracted some shareholder value for investors by um, taking them on because uh, understanding how the trust world works is, is a bit difficult for s- some people from the US. You know, it is a very peculiar British thing. And and um, yeah, I'll stop talking yeah. there before his lawyers get in touch, yeah.
0: <laughs> yes, he had a bit of a run-in with, uh, with them as well, didn't he? It was quite sharp language at some point. So you've got rid of that one. Talking about activists then, tell us about these Japanese activist trusts that you're interested in and and what the story is there. I mean, they've been around for a little yeah. while now, these ones, but uh, are they yeah. beginning to do their do their job?
1: Yeah, beginning to. I mean, it's, it's, it's early days. I mean, AVI, who we were just talking about with Third Point, have got one. The one that we own in, in Maigo is Nippon Active Value. And I was probably really rather slow getting on board with these activist trusts because, you know, having spent four decades being told that this time it's different in Japan and Japanese corporate governance is improving, and it's always been a disappointment, I, I didn't particularly believe the story. But they've performed a lot better than the mainstream peers, there's ever more activists getting involved in that market. So you, particularly medium and small companies in Japan tend to be on very, very low ratings compared to, uh, to Western standards. So you've got a deep discount in the underlying portfolio rather than in the shares of the investment trusts that, that are following. Although we did buy the Nippon Active value at quite a steep discount simply because it was a heavy seller in the market at a difficult time. But generally they don't trade too wide. You know, the deep value is in the in the underlying portfolio. But as more and more activists get involved in that market, that is the catalyst for change. And of course we're always looking for the deep discounts, but there has to be a catalyst for change because if you buy something and you know, small caps in Japan's a good example. If you buy something on a deep discount, unless there's a catalyst, it's going to be on a deep discount when you come to sell.
0: Why did you pick this one rather than AVI or one of those? And this is Nippon Active Value Fund. To get it was simply
1: um, a stock specific situation that there was there was heavy selling in that one for no particular fundamental reason, and, and therefore it traded out at a fifteen or sixteen discount briefly.
0: So you got offered a you had a chance to pick up a yeah. An AVI
1: tends to trade quite tight because it has a sort of a buyback facility or realization options over a period of time, a bit, bit like we have on Migo. So yeah, it has a much tighter discount control mechanism than the Nippon Active Value Fund has.
0: So just before we leave these uh, disposals you've got a couple of, sort of specialist trusts you've got rid of I think uh Cambian Global Timberland I think they have the ticker tree as I recall.
1: Yes I mean that that was a fairly small position. Um it wasn't a small position when we bought it but um it, Yes, you could write a novel about cambium and it would be rejected. Nobody would actually believe it was true.
0: So things have gone a bit wrong there. There's things a story behind
1: But the final directors did a, um, a good job in, in realising the remaining assets. I mean, it had a lot of trees in Brazil and there wasn't a lot of demand for them. But um, I think from memory, this is the one that um, planted teak in Australia, 2,000 miles away from the nearest factory that actually used teak. And the c- costs of getting a heavy wood like that to the end user would be more than the trees were worth was one of the things that happened. I think it was of the financial people getting involved in a, a specialist market. But, yeah, they did a good job and they have they've they'd finally sold off the last plantation. So um, we had a bit of a payout at the end. And uh, this was one, actually, there was a hedge fund that was um, shutting down a few years ago. And we got a lump of shares off them at a bargain basement price, I think 4p, I think it was. And um, um, we were obviously paid rather more than that when the shares were finally redeemed and delisted.
0: Another one I think will be of interest to people is Tufton Oceanic Assets. That's one of these two shipping trusts that have come to the market Yeah, that
1: that was quite the reverse. I mean, you know, we bought it. It's one of the things we bought in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic when the market was taking the view that nobody would actually try and send any containers anywhere ever again. And even though they did, all the crews were stuck in the wrong locations because you remember nobody could fly anywhere at that point in time and therefore we had crew being stuck on boats for nine months, 12 months without being able to get home. So shipping was particularly badly hit in the, in the pandemic, and we could buy Tufton on, on a very, very wide discount. And then, of course, you know all of the um, liquidity was pumped into the markets, all sorts of bailouts, et cetera, for the global economy. And then the global economy took off like a rocket. And the price of taking a container from you know, the west coast of the US to China, for example, went from something like $2,000 to sort of $18,000 and has actually returned. The other thing that squeezes anything higher is there's a lot of uncertainty over what propulsion will be used by boats in the future. And that when you've got to buy something for a 25-year life, you hold off putting any orders on. So it, was, it coincided with a, a general shortage in, in shipping. So this thing absolutely flew. And it was just a view that life was as good as it could possibly get with the freight rates where they were, with the, with the shortage of boats coming on. I mean, it, um, it's a viciously cyclical industry. And therefore, we decided to take our money and run.
0: Yes, it is very difficult and that's one reason why they kind of disappeared in past shipping. Investment trusts, is it a good area for an investment trust to be invested I think in? so.
1: It's ideal. I mean, it, you look at the asset classes, some of the asset classes we're talking about here, and uh, uh, shipping funds should be closed-ended. You know, we've seen problems of open-ended funds of property over the years where they have far too much cash and get cash dragged on the way up, and all the way down, everyone wants to come out, and then, then they get gated. So I think it's ideal for the closed-ended world, and that's why we're getting so many asset classes appearing, you know, being offered via closed-ended funds.
0: So is it one you might go back to another yeah, time?
1: Yeah, very, very much so. Yeah, if the world moves that way. Yeah, it needs to be a bit cheaper than where it is at the moment, but yes, that certainly could re-enter the portfolio. Okay. And would that also
0: be true of Polar Capital Global Financials, which is one you bought, and now I think you've got rid of that one?
1: As yeah, well. that was just a, a bit of a run. Bank shares, particularly in the States, were, were very, very cheap. And you know if interest rates are going to rise, then margins will expand for banks. So it was just really a play on banks coming back into favour, and it was more of a view on an asset class. And obviously, there aren't that many ways for us to play the um, the bank sector.
0: Okay. So there's there's quite a lot of shifted out. Just remind us how many uh, holdings you do have in the portfolio.
1: Well, normally for real, I mean, we've probably got 50 odd old holdings, but so many of those are old trusts that are in liquidation, because that's what tends to happen to a lot of our positions is that, you know, if they've been underperforming for years, gone to a big discount, they're in the last class saloon, and if things don't work, very often they'll move into an orderly realisation and you get the money back. And therefore, we've got quite a few positions that are, you know, might be the liquidators retention, or there's one or two assets left to sell. So the the bulk of the NAV is in about thirty five stocks, or tends to be in about thirty five stocks.
0: Right. So there's a significant chunk, anyway. So of those thirty five, you've shifted about uh, fifteen twenty percent, something like that.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, that would be typical. Yeah
0: okay well let's go back to then the things you have been buying you mentioned quite a few at the beginning there let's talk about the biotech first of all i mean biotech is another one has been on a roller coaster ride shall we say <laughs> but you've got biotech growth trust that's ticker BIOG, and international biotechnology trust which is ticker ibt and we heard some uh, results from them recently as well and you're basically arguing that they've been oversold basically is that right
1: yeah i mean go back a few months I and mean, there has been a, a reasonable recovery i mean you you know Biotech was struggling. I mean, it had a bit of a bull run in 2021, but then you found that uh, a lot of resources were diverted away, you know, from many branches of medicine saw the uh, resources diverted to the fighting of COVID. And therefore, you know, progress was disappointing and which triggered quite a big sell off. So we got to the place a few months ago where a vast part of the sector was actually trading below cash. That doesn't bring in asset stripping or anything like that. I mean, it, because that cash in a biotech is designed to be spent in research and development coming up with new drugs. But it meant that, you know, at that point in time, whatever intellectual capital and whatever products they had were effectively coming for three. So the, again, it's another example where the excitement is in the underlying portfolio rather than the width of the discounts. More recently, we had some fantastic news from IBT. I think it was Horizon Therapeutics off the top of my head, which was one of their biggest positions, if not their biggest position. Was bought out, I think, probably beginning of this week, which you know gives an indication about you know how cheap some biotech stocks are, and we would expect there to be more M and A in that area and some more nice uplifts for the uh, for the biotech trusts.
0: So, therefore, you think there's still more to go with these ones? I mean, you, yeah, are, you yeah. know-
1: we're not we're not tempted to sell no.
0: I mean, international biotechnology trust is about seven pounds, I think, at the moment, something like that. It's yeah. pretty close to its all. I mean, it, its all-time highing was about eight pounds twenty-five or something. But uh, you, you think this is a long-term growth story, essentially, as well
1: as? Yeah, I think I think the sector is out of favour, and again, it's another of these ones that's viciously cyclical. Even though it's not a particularly cyclical industry, you know. In fact, it's quite the reverse. But you know, it comes in and out of favour, and um, you know, can be pretty volatile.
0: And just on biotech growth trust, BIOG, as I said. Well, that one has come down rather further than uh, than IBT. Is there a yeah. special situation there? Is there no particular factor why that one has
1: sold off more than the... Uh- Not sure. I mean, we've tweaked our position. So we we used to have more in Biog than in IBT, and it's now more or less even, having switched some money out of Biog into IBT. The slight concern is they've got three unlisted Chinese stocks, and I think the world has changed. It probably worked right over recent weeks, but, you know, it's only my own personal view, but... China has moved back to totalitarianism and, and, you know, they can change the rules. And uh, I'm not so sure that some of these Chinese biotechs will get IPO'd next year. So just a bit of caution. It was part of an exercise of looking what exposure we had to China. And on the look through basis, you know, I mean, Biog had about 9% in China. And therefore, that was a bit of a risk. So we tweaked that one down and, and reinvested the proceeds into IBT.
0: Because that one's come down for about £16, 50 down. It went all the way down to, what, about seven quid, eight quid, something like that. And it's now trading yep. around nine, I think, something like yep. that. But again, yep. long-term record is still pretty good. So uh, interesting sector. Do you think that there's a particular reason why biotech would sell off so dramatically in terms of the people who buy investment trusts? I mean, wealth managers, people like that, do they struggle to... Uh, it
1: tends to get lumped into the growth and value and therefore... After the, you know, we had the sort of problems because of resources being diverted elsewhere, then it just walked straight into everyone dumping growth and buying value and biotech is seen as, as outright growth. And then we've had you know, the Democrats rattling the saber about drug pricing as well. So you had a, had a bit of a toxic combination of things affecting the sector a couple of months back.
0: Yeah, that one comes around every <laughs> every yeah. time they have an election, yeah. doesn't it? Or every time something is about to happen. Okay, and then let's just talk about the other two situations worthy of note. One is the, the aircraft leasing. Uh, everybody thought these things were all going bust uh, not so long ago. So uh, what's the story here? They've come roaring back and uh, quite a specialist area, of course. But uh, what's, what's your thinking on this one? I mean, there's several trusts. So why have you picked the one you have picked?
1: AA-4, well, it's pure got a lot of exposure to um, to Emirates, which is, you know, quite a stable organisation and has paid the, the leases all the way through. I mean, the situation you had not so many months ago was a lot of these planes were just parked in the desert gathering dust. And we've had a big recovery in demand for air transport and therefore a lot of these have been pulled back into service. So there's more revenue coming through for these trusts. But also the other sort of special situation is that I think the A380s, which dominates that particular trust, were going to be replaced by new generations of wide-bodied planes. But there's been all sorts of problems with the new models. And therefore, the likes of Emirates are not getting much in the way of deliveries of these new planes. And so they may just keep running the A380s much longer into the future. So you've got the combination of increased demand and getting back into the air. And then, you know, the, these planes will be flying for, for many years longer than we would have anticipated even a year ago. You know, and when the shares are so unloved... That has quite a spectacular effect. Most of the income will come from the the dividends. But the dividends will probably be more than where the share prices have been of late. And you may get some residual value. They've got some A350s with Thai Airways, which may have some value. I don't know there'll be any residual value on the 380 because it's not made anymore. um, And that's all just going to be about running them for revenue. So most of the returns from these trusts will come by dividends.
0: So you bought this one, but uh, is there a specific reason why you bought this one rather than the others? And what's the difference
1: between this one and the others? You have different counterparties and different planes. So the the attraction here was that you've got a solid counterparty for sort of three quarters of the planes. You know, they paid their leasing fees all the way through the pandemic. So um, where, you know, for example, Thai had all sorts of financial issues.
0: Airlines not known for being uh, particularly good risks, exactly. Though they are underwritten in the end by, uh, by governments, mostly. And then uh, this VPC specialty lending investments, this is obviously a debt fund. And you've yeah. also talked about um, EJF, which is a slightly different uh, animal. To
1: yeah, get. they're sort of similar in a way, because the reason both of them trade on big discounts is the same. That they're, they're run out of the States. I think one is run out of Washington, one out of Chicago. I think the other one, um, VPC. Yeah. But, you know, I manage an investment trust and you can build a following by getting out and about and, and talking to investors. It's much more difficult if this is just part of a vast pot. So if you're running, a, amongst many other mandates, a £100 million investment trust in the UK and you've got a pot of very similar assets running to many, many billions out in the States, you know, you're not able to get out and, and market and try and get a following for a trust that's Probably a bit too small and and also whilst both of those funds have performed very well, it's quite tricky to actually understand what it is they do. even if you're a professional investor, you have to concentrate and, and go and find out a, a bit. so you know very often discounts arrive simply because the of the inability of the manager to get out and tell the story and communicate the story and recognize who they should be talking to because both of those really um, are of a size where the self-directed investor is going to be the main buyer because you're not going to see the mega chains buying into a £100 million investment trust. But how would you get that message across to a retired company director in Bristol who's got all his money in his uh, Hagrid Lansdowne SIP? And it's tricky, and that's why you end up with uh, no buyers and a few sellers. And whilst turnover is low, the lack of buying and and the modest trickle of selling, the market makers just keep marking it low because they don't want to build any inventory.
0: Does that also imply that some of these things basically will disappear in due course.
1: Yes, and um, VPC, since we bought, has been approached by a couple of hedge funds who are seeking to improve shareholder value, shall we say, which I suppose is narrow the discount and get your money out.
0: And you wouldn't be unhappy with that, of course. That would be good news for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know... They might generate better returns over the very long term if they're left alone, but I suspect that's not going to happen. The thing is, you know, if you're running an investment trust or closed end fund languishing on 25, 30, 35% discounts with perfectly good assets, you are going to attract that kind of attention.
0: Indeed, that's the charm and the opportunity in the sector uh, when yeah. it comes around. You're absolutely right. Well, let's talk about some of the broader themes in your portfolio. You mentioned biotech. Obviously, we've talked about that one. You've still got your position in uranium. Obviously, oil prices and gas prices seem to be coming down a lot. But um, presumably, the story here is still that the world is going to need more nuclear in due course. Yeah,
1: I mean, uh, nuclear power seems to be moving more mainstream. People are accepting it as, as green or non-carbon. And I suppose it's not a rare mineral. And the fact that you're building a, a new nuclear power station at Sizewall, for example won't have a dramatic change because that'll be at least 10 years before it's built. And, of course, the reason why uranium is in relatively short supply isn't that it's rare itself. It's just nobody's been looking at it for years and therefore nobody's really developed new mines because since the Fukushima accident in 2011, you know, for a long period it traded around $25 a pound. It's now up to about 50 which has been enough to um, reopen some mothballed mines. So that's bringing a little bit more supply. But, you know, the squeeze higher really comes from so many countries deciding to run their existing nuclear fleet for much longer. So, you know, we've seen in France they were intending to go from 75% nuclear to 50% nuclear. That now won't happen. But those nuclear power stations won't have, have any stockpiles of uranium because they weren't expected to be open. And they think that's the area in the short term that will mop up more supply. So we've gone from 25 to 50 We'll have a spell at 50 while you mopping up the supply that comes in from the mothballed mines. But there aren't that many mothballed mines. And certainly there are very few mines that are being built or developed because why would you? You needed $80 to justify the development of a mine and the price of it for a decade has been 25 So it's the old saw in the mining industry. The cure for low prices is low prices. If the price is very low, mines will be exhausted, new mines will come on, and then suddenly your mineral is in, in short supply.
0: Yeah, and we start the whole cycle all over again. So you own both Yellowcake and uh, Geiger Counter. Those are two trusts that you own. In the-
1: yeah, they're very different return profiles, though, because one is quite operationally geared. Geiger Counter actually owns mines, and it, and in practice, mines under development. So big position is, is um, next energy in Canada, and that is one of only a handful of mines that it will be coming on and producing over the next two or three years. So. Uh, so Geiger counter-owns mines, so operationally geared. Yellow Cape just owns physical uranium. So the return profiles are, are very different. You should benefit from you know, rising uranium prices with Yellow Cape, but you won't get any of the operational gearing that you get from um, a newly opened mine.
0: And how do they trade those two? I mean, is there a discount story there as well?
1: Well, there they are from time to time. They've tended to trade around par, both for trading on discounts at the moment of of seven or eight percent, because people have just got bored because the uranium price hasn't moved for many months. So it was a bit meme-like the rush up. It got to be a story that you had with all these uh, retail investors in the states trading the Game Stops this world, and uranium sort of got caught up in that. And I think that class of investor will just be getting bored at the moment and selling their holding back.
0: Okay, so uh, this is why it's such fun talking to you, Nick, because there's always such a variety of different things to talk about. And that's the whole point of your trust, of course, it's very uncorrelated with the, the main market yeah,
1: uncorrelated, and it, and there's a lot of diversification. So that's the reason most people hold it, is that it brings diversification to a portfolio because it, it has such an um, exposure to things that you're just not getting elsewhere.
0: Yeah, well, let's talk about property. You've been a holder for a while in uh, something called Macau Property Opportunities. Tell us about that one. And you've also got your Berlin residential property, uh, Phoenix Spray. Yeah. I
1: mean- property stocks and property trusts have been hit very, very hard. And you know it's not unusual to find them out on a 40%, 45% discount. In fact, I think Macau is on a much, much wider discount than that. I think the reason for the heavy sell is that a lot of uncertainty over where interest rates will, will end up. And obviously, borrowing and debt and interest rates make up a, a lot of the factors behind property valuations. And so, until we have a bit of certainty about where interest rates are going to go, you're just left with uncertainty. And when you have uncertainty, nobody can make assumptions about anything, and therefore prices just keep falling until there is some certainty. And you get a rally even with the certainty of bad news. And once you can quantify what's going to happen, people can make their assumptions, get their slide rules out, and very often in that case, the you know the fair value of the shares is quite a bit higher than where they've got to. And I suspect. We've got a lot of that in in the property sector. Um, And you you mentioned Macau, which is quite an interesting reopening story. I mean, it's in liquidation, it's selling down its assets, but it's been very difficult to sell upmarket apartments in Macau because the natural buyers, very often Hong Kong Chinese, can't actually get to Macau to look at the properties and therefore aren't going to buy. So it's a sort of classic reopening story. Can't remember the exact figures off the top of my head, but um, the NAV in sterling terms will be somewhere in the region of 150 Shares were trading at 40 or pence this morning, I think 46, I think, last time I saw. And it, One thing that was notable this morning, that the, the managers of this trust keep buying stock for themselves. And there was an announcement out this morning that they'd bought another 200,000 shares, which has taken them to 19% of the company. And I think if you're heavily involved in the assets of a particular investment trust and you, you decide to buy up 20% of the shares in issue, that's quite a commitment. And you're probably in a better position than the market to work out whether that's a good idea or not. So quite often when we see that, we might have a nibble at the shares ourselves if you, if, you, if you see some some PA buying. I mean, there's no reason to own 20% of the company unless you actually think it's a good idea. So uh, we bought a few more this morning, just purely on the back of that, as we did a few days ago on a Birmingham specialist called Real Estate Investors, where, again, the two guys that, that run the trust day to day bought significant amount of shares for themselves. So it's quite interesting, even within the sort of four or five property situations we've got, it does help thinking that, the, that some of these things have got oversold, seeing how much personal money a couple of the managements are putting into their own trusts.
0: Yeah, so that's usually a positive sign. Sometimes in some situations it gets too large and then they forget that uh, they also have external shareholders to worry about. But uh, as you say, that's yeah. an interesting positive. We've seen some examples of that, of course. Let's talk briefly then about um, private equity and growth capital. So it's kind of kind of two-way story here. I mean, you own some of the growth capital trusts, Well, you own Chrysalis, You own uh, Schroeder UK Public Private, which has been a bit of a disappointment, I think. Well, both of those have been disappointments in different ways. And uh, you also own a couple of private equity trusts, Oakley Capital and NB Private Equity Partners. Very different stories, of course. But let's take the Chrysalis and Schroeder UK Public Private first. Are you disappointed with progress? Are you still uh, hoping you're going to get um, something back from these ones?
1: A mixture. I mean, Chrysalis was a big holding. And again, a bit like with the shipping funds, we felt it got us as good as it could get, and sold off most of our holding. Uh, And uh, then it started to fall, and we decided we we wouldn't sell any more given how weak they were, and then they fell and fell again. We've actually been buying back into that one of late, um, in that it just felt that you only needed one or two good businesses in there for the shares to be, um, you know... I think it's one of these situations where investors and advisors just don't want that name on their clients' portfolios because the things have fallen so far. They know the next time they're just discussing the portfolio with their clients that 55 minutes of the hour will be spent talking about chrysalis. So why not get rid of chrysalis before the next meeting? So I think I think they just got oversold. Frustrating we didn't buy enough because they've bounced very, very strongly since. A SUP, which is Australia's you know, public private, the old Woodford patient capital, which is a name from history that people will remember. Again, there. That's just more of a turnaround situation, and the early-stage private equity is just very out of favour at the moment. Um, you know, despite the big investment, Oxford Nanopore is a good business. Uh, Municore has had money put into it by um, by Pharma Credit. So there's some some interesting businesses there. Uh, it's traded on an enormous discount, but probably once we get past the December year end. Um, private equity tends to be more forensic on, the, on its year-end valuations. And I think at that point, once we've got those NAVs, which we won't have for a, for a few months, people will then start believing the NAV. So I think we're getting to the point, we, we bought a few shares in SUP and um, they've carried on down. and We probably haven't reached the stage yet to build a proper holding. So Chrysalis is sort of a bit like River Mercantile Microcap, something that did fantastically well and was largely sold. It's now being rebuilt. We suck. we haven't got to the point where you should be pressing the button yet. But I suspect come the spring, when we've got a bit more confidence in, in the valuations, that might be the time to go for those a little bit more. Um, Oakley and MB Private Equity, you know, the sector is, is desperately out of favour. There's two things really going on with those trusts. One is that they've got high OCFs, which means many advisors can't really use them in their portfolios because it, but they have to declare those underlying costs on top of their own costs, it makes their products seem very expensive. And therefore commercially, it's very difficult for them to own private equity. The other point is that um, people are quite nervous about where the the NAVs actually are. But I think the reality is that, you know, we saw in the public market, some of these early growth stocks go to the moon and come all the way back again. That all happened so fast that a lot of the private equity trusts never got round to revaluing their investments before they plunged back to earth. And therefore there doesn't need to be much of a write down. What we are going to lose is the big uplifts on exit because the move in interest rates probably you know and these transactions are often done with a fair amount of debt that the the likely exits are probably fifteen to twenty percent lower than they would have been last year. So it's not so much that the, the navs have to be written down; it's just there is less hope of getting the nice uplifts that uh, that we have been getting simply just the mathematics around the debt.
0: And so you're only these two, but you're happy to wait for them? To- happy to wait,
1: yeah. And the same point that I was making about SUP applies as well, because, you know, once they come up with their end-December figures, I think people have a lot more confidence in the NAs, And I suspect there will be modest write-downs, but, you know, some of these things, particularly the funder funds, have been at times trading in the mid-40s of discounts. You know, modest write-down and then moving back to their longer-term average, which is probably typically 15. They always tend, these private equity just tend to trade on, on discounts. But there's no reason why they can't trade near the longer term averages again. So if you move from a 40% discount, i.e. 60 pence in the pound, to 85 pence in the pound, that's quite a big movement.
0: It is indeed. And uh, obviously, that's the potential upside there, indeed. Finally, Nick, this has been very interesting going through your sort of corners of your portfolio, which, is, as you say, is incredibly diverse and uh, not very well correlated with the uh, traditional equity market. So valuable for both those two things. But you're not immune to what's been going on yourself. The trust has obviously uh, lost some value this year. The discount hasn't widened because you have a buyback policy, but uh, it's trades around par, which is good. But the underlying discount in your trust is pretty wide, and yeah. they've all widened, obviously, because of what's going on. Going back to where we were at the beginning, do you think we are, uh, as far as your holdings are concerned, are we through the worst of this uh, discount widening that's been affecting the underlying value of your portfolio?
1: I hope so, because I know mean, the last time we measured it, it was 28.8% was the average discount of, of, of the top 12. So I think if the discounts widen from here, and there's been a big headwind for the fund and for investment trusts generally in that... Um, whilst the discounts that our underlying stocks trade on is a fantastic opportunity looking forward, we have owned these things whilst they've been derating. um so there's quite a big headwind we had to cope with. I think if they widened again from here, then we would see a lot of corporate activity because you know we're already very very cheap and um you know if the second hand value of these things is getting if you're going beyond thirty, you know investors are able to buy into these assets at sort of say sixty five pence in the pound perfectly good assets it that does seem to suggest that corporate activity can't be that far away for some of these things. Also what we've been seeing what will tend to happen is that discounts in the whole sector got very wide. I mean I think we were the AIC figure was sub one for the first of January, or 31st of December last year. And I think in the you know probably about the second week of October it reached seventeen. So that's for the average trust. Obviously ours are much wider than that. And what we've seen since then is is a bit of a recovery in the very large trust, but that hasn't filtered through to the smaller investment trusts that, that we own. But that would always be the case. You would expect the larger ones to uh, to normalise first before the you know people start looking f- further down the list. And there's a bit of increased appetite for risk. Obviously, looking at the screens today, we're seeing you know a fair amount of red past the um, the various interest rate rises we've seen. So it's probably not going to happen yet. But yes, certainly it doesn't take much improvement in sentiment to see those discounts narrow sharply.
0: And of course, you're pleased with the fact that the discount on your trust has not widened in the same way. But the shares, I think they, you nearly got up to about four quid, I think, at the end of last year. And they're now trading around 3.30, 3.35. We, we
1: did it. go up to quite a big premium briefly. There was a very nice tip in one of the trades that uh, caused the shares to spike higher. Usually these things that was um, in NAV terms, that was probably our high. And then we went on to a premium to that. So um, that's unwound. We're back trading at around par. So um, the NAV, I don't think, ever got beyond the sort of 380s or low 380s.
0: What's the secret of keeping your trading around par?
1: I think it's just over a number of years where um has built up in the market. We bought those shares in for cancellation. Uh, and also when there's more demand, we've, we've issued shares to take the heat out of the premium. So the market's seen how we actually behave and what we do. There is no formal discount control mechanism, but... If the market knows how you're likely to behave, then they know that if an overhang builds up, then we'll probably buy the shares for cancellation. What's happened this year, as you say, the shares were very popular at the beginning of the year. And therefore, we were issuing shares you know, to take the heat out of it because it had gone to a, a bit of a premium. And that can be a bit of a problem in that um, if people buy your shares at a premium and don't really understand what they're doing, uh, or don't understand they're paying well above NAV, if the shares then go back to a modest discount, that's quite a big hit to the shares and they'll think it's all your fault. So it's something we're keen to avoid. So we were issuing in the first quarter. Second quarter, markets were pretty tough and um, people were selling and therefore we bought in quite a bit of stock in the second quarter. And then in the third quarter, we were issuing again.
0: Right, so it's been a bit of a roller coaster in that sense.
1: So finally, then
0: we're approaching the end of the year, Christmas, and uh, time to look. People always look forward at this point. Uh, what, what are you hoping for in uh, 2023, other than uh, narrowing discounts? Well, I'm sure that's part of it. But uh, you've been through this kind of market before, so you probably yeah. have an idea what what might happen.
1: Yeah, I think over time we will see that, as I said before, the tide is is going out, and therefore that'll undermine modestly asset prices and so sideways to falling markets quite good for us because whilst we find all these interesting opportunities and make some returns out of it you know you could be working very hard in a year and have found all sorts of opportunities to exploit mispricings to exploit and let's say you've generated 13 percent by the end of that year if the markets have just gone up 14 or 15 you've done all that work and nobody cares if the market's not really going anywhere What we're actually able to achieve will be obvious. And um, so commercially, the conditions we're likely to get is is, is pretty well perfect for us.
0: If we do get into choppier waters, do you think there will be more investment trusts going out of business or coming to the end of their, their lives?
1: Well, I think we'll steadily lose equity funds because unless you're using the capital structure through debt or having a particularly punchy portfolio, you're not really offering investors anything and you've just got this discount volatility that people have got to cope with and the, and the hassle of actually buying and selling. You've, there's got to be something in return for that. So I I suspect we'll lose a few more equity funds, but we're also starting to lose some of the newer breed that were perhaps Me Too products. And um, once life has got tough, you know their shortcomings have become more obvious. And therefore, I think there'll be a clearing out of some of those as well. And long term, that's healthy. Short term, that's uh... yeah. No, I mean the sector just keeps evolving. I mean, it's now quickly becoming a home for alternatives. The end users, you know, back in the nineties, it was it was still mainly an institutional market. If you look at the early shareholders of Migo, were institutions like F and and G's, a lot of the Scottish institutions. Then they became the natural ownership of private client stockbrokers, who've now disappeared. And now the natural owners of investment trusts are becoming the self directed investor. Um, who can you know buy a few shares without having to worry too much about the, the liquidity. So it keeps evolving. And as, as I said, they used to pretty well all be equity funds not that long ago. Uh, and now there's a whole wide range of, of asset classes that they can offer exposure to. So, the, yeah, the sector, I've been told... For most of the last 40 years I've been dealing in trusts or investing in trusts or being in the trust sector, that the sector is slowly dying. But um, it's never died. It's down to its last $142 So hopefully that'll keep it going for a little bit longer yet.
0: We certainly hope that's the case. So thank you, uh, Nick, very much for your time. As always, always interesting to talk through these uh, kind of trusts that we don't often get a chance to talk about, some of them. And uh, they are part of the rich tapestry of the... uh, investment trust world. So uh, thank you very much and good luck with what's going to come, whatever
1: that may be. I appreciate yeah. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.moneymakers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Money Makers Circle. Available now at the website.